Hello, everybody. Welcome to a, yet another episode of Top Topical Brainstorm. I always have a hard time saying it. Topical. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm Garrett. I'm here again with my buddy Christian. Christian, what's up? Uh, nothing much. Cool, cool. I'm glad to be here yet again. <laughs> Good. Did you uh, enjoy your Labor Day weekend? Um, for the most part. Nice to have an extra day off. Yeah, it was super nice. I had a hard time getting up today and going to work. I did as well. Oh, man. (laughs) I felt half completely dead. (laughs) Do you ever have a hard time, because you work at home, do you ever have a hard time just getting up and like not leaving the house that much? Does that bother you? Sometimes, yeah. Not usually in the morning. Yeah. I feel like my first few months of this job and when we first got into this house, because that happened about the same time, I would I would get out of bed at 825 almost every day and just like barely make it to work from my desk downstairs time, on time. Um, but then I started studying for my CPA exam and now it's I usually am up by like seven at the latest. Yeah. Which feels good because it's really nice to have just some time to either be productive or just relax before I have to sit at my desk and work. But um, yeah, I there are definitely times when I get sick of just being home alone all day and feel like I need more social interaction. Gotcha. Uh, so pros and cons. But. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Well, I had a great weekend full of food, a lot of food. We went to Park City. I bought some new basketball shoes. At the Nike outlet? Yeah. Nice. I've been looking. The Nike outlet in Park City is way bigger than the one in Farmington. Oh, I've never been to the one in Farmington, I don't think. The one in Farmington's nice, but it's just not. It's so small in comparison that it's just not. It's not very good. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, got some new shoes. I bought some Vans because they were buy one, get one. So. You've been good. playing basketball lately? Yeah, usually I typically play once a week. Okay. Um, I didn't play last week, but I played the week before. And nice. So, yeah, it's been good. Uh, yeah, other than that. I eat way too much food, which kind of, what can you do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can do some things. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I started The Hobbit, or not The Hobbit. I finished The Hobbit and started The Fellowship of the Rings. Nice. And let me tell you, Tolkien, that guy can ramble. (laughs) Yeah. He just goes, ah. How far in are you? I'm on page six. (laughs) Okay. So, and I'm yeah. already like, wow, I there's so much about hobbits that I just didn't know and now I know and have already forgotten. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wow. There's this whole I think the first maybe eighty I mean, every version probably has a different size of page, right? But yeah. There's this whole section in the start of that book with this character that's not in the movies at all, who just well, don't tell me. Don't tell me who it is. I'm not going to. I'm just going to say he just talks forever. (laughs) 
I and, think I know uh, who you're talking about. You might. Is, I feel like is it know. a a wizard? Um, I don't really remember. I okay. I don't know if he falls in the wizard category. He's definitely like a a magical weird individual. Okay. I think I, I don't remember know who if you're talking about, but. Not, but um. Yeah, it was it was it was strange, and then I and then I felt like it got back to the story that I knew, but yeah, <laughs> a lot of pages of that. So <laughs> heads up. Well, cool. <laughs> yeah, Let's see how that goes. Yeah. Um, good luck. Well, do you want to just jump into it then? Sure. Okay, so today we continue our quest of. Our quest and analysis of Creativity Inc., written by Ed Catmull. Uh, if you haven't been keeping up with us, this book is for written for managers of creative teams, and it's about how you can better manage those teams. Uh, it has a lot of other applicable things. It doesn't have to be just creative teams, but um, these, I feel like this section, part three, which is chapters 10 and 11, had a lot to do with specifically creative teams. Maybe I'm just limiting it and putting it in a box, but that's just how I felt. What do you think? I agree. There were, there were a couple pages that I didn't feel like I got much out of at all, but yeah, there are definitely still messages or themes that can be applied to, I think, general communication guidelines or um, advice, as well as um, he talks a lot about, and especially in this section, broadening your view and getting out of your little mental models that limit your view, limit your understanding of life in general. And the first chapter of the, of the two in this section was, was called just that broadening our view. And the majority of it was, he talks about eight strategies that they use at Pixar to broaden their own view and to make sure they're not getting too pigeonholed or uh, make sure they're always improving. Um, but he starts the chapter off by telling a story of a husband and wife. And it was actually him and his wife were on a couple's trip with another couple. And the guy, they'd rented a trailer. They decided to take these back roads to avoid all the toll booths on the East Coast. Somewhere around there they were driving. And, um, at one point they went around a roundabout and the other husband was driving and he was an inexperienced motorhome driver and he hit the curb and their tire blew. Um, and it was, as he explained, one of those that had six tires total. So four in the back. So he could still drive. It wasn't super obvious that the tire was blown, but it was obvious enough. But the, the wife of the driver kind of started nagging him. She was like, the tire's blown. You blew the tire. And then he, the driver would just not admit it. And Ed and his wife were obviously aware that the tire blew. And they're like, we need to pull over soon before we do more damage to this thing. And they drove for 10 or 15 minutes with the couple just bickering about it <clears throat> before the husband finally pulled over. And then 
they had to change the tire, right? But he used that as an example of how, and especially in your own head or in small groups and and probably in, in marriages, obviously, is a good example. But it's really easy to limit your mental model and just get stuck in your little bubble of understanding. And I thought that was a good story and a good example because I think if it had just been a guy's trip and there'd been four guys in the, in the trailer and he'd done the same thing. He probably would have like instantly been like, Oh shoot, I blew a tire. But because his wife like got him right at the start, he just instantly got defensive. And I think one of the goals that Ed Catmull kind of talks about is avoiding that defensiveness and really opening yourself up, opening your mind up to all the possible opportunities um, that are out there in your life. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that story, and I can see how that would happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that Michaela nags me because she really doesn't, and she's really great, but I could see how if you were being nagged all the time, how even if you know you're wrong, you'd, you'd still fight for what – you'd fight for the sake of fighting, you know? Uh, one – way that they reduce this from uh, this defensiveness from happening at Pixar is a daily meeting. The directors of each film with their staff have a daily meeting where they go over storyboards and they talk about the project and they solve problems together. Uh, when you solve problems together, you eliminate or seriously reduce this defensiveness that comes because everyone realizes that it's a process that everyone does. And when everyone knows that everyone does it, there's no reason to be defensive. So in a creative setting, I can see how that would definitely help. In any setting, really, where you're managing people, I could see how a daily meeting would be really beneficial to... Um, decreasing defensiveness in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The second tactic they use are research trips. And he gives a few examples about how they sent some animators to Paris to, to observe how cooks and chefs work in kitchens when they were working on Ratatouille. And they went to a couple of universities when they were working on um, Monsters University, the sequel to Monsters, Inc. And the how prequel. the prequel, my bad, <laughs> how uh, those those trips allowed the animators to work on and notice little details that they threw into the film that made it feel a lot more authentic. And me and Kylie actually watched Ratatouille this last week in a couple different days. It took us a few days to finish it. We watched little chunks, but yeah, there are just a lot of details, which I'm sure I've never really noticed, but definitely add to the vibe and add to the environment and make it feel a lot more real. And I'm sure their movies wouldn't be as good if they didn't do those things. And bringing that to a real life example, I think just the desire to constantly be learning and getting out of your comfort zone is important um, to just make yourself a more well-rounded person and get out of your ruts and 
and get out of, like you were talking about earlier, I work from home. I'm, I'm home 99% of the time. It seems like, and, um, over time I have felt like I've lost social abilities and little things like that, where social situations are a little harder for me now. And yeah, I think it's really good for me to get out of the house and, uh, I need to do it more often still, but I've become more aware of that the last few months and been putting effort into doing that. But yeah, just like getting out of your regular environment, I think in life is just valuable for a lot of reasons. It helps broaden your horizons and, and, uh, experience just different points of view, which just helps in communication and life and everything. I agree. One quote from that section that I really liked was, uh, you'll never stumble upon the unexpected if you only stick to the familiar. Um, that's super, that's like one of those things that's common sense that you just never think about. If you always, it's similar to the quote that, um, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get the same result that you've always gotten, which is super, that's just applicable to life, man. If Mm -hmm. you, I feel like doing research trips like that, no matter what it is, is just good. It changes you. It helps you develop as a person and it helps you see things from a different light. And it doesn't have to be going to Paris to watch chefs in the kitchen, you know. It could be going down the street to see a different store or I I don't know, maybe maybe you're researching which store is best. So you traveled all the different stores i just i don't know (laughs) yeah i feel like that was a terrible example but i feel like what i said i hear you yeah um anyway just do things differently man (laughs) do things differently garrett's motto of Uh, whatever year that was 2018 (laughs) i don't know that was so long ago the next tactic they use is titled the power of limits and i don't remember too many details on this one but i think it had to do with setting boundaries for themselves as far as their workload goes and and i don't i can't necessarily relate to that in my work but i could understand in any creative environment that you could always do more and always add more to the work you're doing. And he uses the idea of a beautifully shaded penny and how an animator could spend weeks on making a penny lying on a table look realistic and look really good. And it can always be improved, right? So where do you draw the line of good enough, especially when your company motto is like, we're not going to put out anything that's mediocre, right? As Pixar's is. Um, so he talks about the power of setting limits for yourself and knowing where to spend your time because you can't do everything you want. So you have to find smarter ways and more efficient ways to get your work done, which again applies specifically really well to creative fields, but is still a lesson. It's good for everybody to, to think about once in a while. I don't know. I don't think that one's totally or exclusively 
creative fields. I feel like if you have, so this, the section is called the power of limits and that power comes through better being able to divide your time by yourself. But if you impose these limits as a manager in the wrong way, you crush creativity. You stop it in its tracks because you leave no time for people to do what they want. But if they have some sort of time frame, if they have a limit, they know, okay, I can't spend so much time on this penny. I need to move on. But the penny looks good enough. People have a knack for dividing up their time the way they need to to get things done. I mean, I feel like most people, things get done in the last few minutes or the last few days because we all, most of us procrastinate. But just that time limit often allows people to self-governed which i feel like is good i think that would apply if you have a deadline in any other field i feel like it would apply as well you have to get it done by this time but again if you do it wrongfully or don't leave enough time you crush the whole process and people are just unhappy that's true I guess I was thinking more of accounting again. It's like you have a balance sheet. It's either balanced or it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's no such thing as like, oh, it's good enough. I mean, I guess there is if there's a couple pennies off or whatever it is. But yeah, you make you make a good point where it is a lot about time management. And as a manager, I think there is a fine line you got to walk as far as Setting limits on people and letting them set their own limits. Yeah. In the most productive. Um, and I think he gets into that a little bit there too. But and I think a lot of that comes with just understanding on an individual level the people you work with. Yeah. I think so too. Uh, this next section is called Integrating Technology and Art. And this is one where I could see it breaching into other fields, but this, he was specifically talking about the creative fields in general. Uh, but it's this idea that you shouldn't fall into the trap of everything new is bad because this is the way we've always done it. Uh, the desire for more and better tools often allows the creation of more art. Um, he gives. I, do you have any examples that he gave? Because I'm blanking on them. I think he talked about one program that they put in that helped them. I want to say it helped them manage their projects and time management, kind of. No, okay. It helped them put little like pitches together for scenes. So the process used to be that they'd have to basically animate it frame by frame and it was really time consuming, but then they built some sort of program where the directors could edit things really quickly. Um, and how at first it wasn't accepted because it, it felt like a waste of time, but then they now still use it today. So kind of just those disruptive adjustments that companies have to make. Um, which are always kind of annoying 
But if they do pay off in the long run, it's always worth it to implement it, right? As opposed to put it off because it's can be frustrating and time consuming at the beginning. Um, for example, my company just changed their uh, time card software. And it was really annoying because we had to like sit through meetings and take these trainings just to like book our time when we already have a website we use. It's just like, this is dumb and no one's happy about it. But but they obviously had a reason for doing it and they're going to be able to analyze the time better and, and figure out which clients are profitable and all that jazz, which I don't have to worry about. But yeah, um, yeah, just I think using technology to the best of, of uh, the best you can is going to pay off in the long run as opposed to sticking with the methods that work that are good enough, right? You got to know when to upgrade things. Well, that's really interesting as well, because the way Pixar implemented the system that you were talking about is they didn't force it on any of their directors. They, I believe one of them had the idea and this director started using it and then the other directors were like, that's so much better. I'm going to start using that because I can do things faster and more efficiently. And it wasn't forced on any of them. Because when things are forced upon people, they often just hate it for the sake of hating it. Yeah. Uh, for, for the sake that it's different, they just don't like it. You know, I'm the same way. Uh, another concept that he talks about is how often the desire for one thing affects the other. In this case, the desire for better art uh, often spurred the creation of better tools to make that art or, you know, better tools to make the animation, Uh, which that makes sense to me. I don't know. What do you think? Um, honestly, don't remember that part. But oh. uh, <laughs> well, there you sure. go. <clears throat> I'll say it makes yeah. sense. Well, I think that's how it is with a lot of things. NASA is a huge example of a lot of things came from them that were unintended. Unintended. But because they decided to go to the moon, we now have a bunch of technology that that came from that. One thing kind of led to another, and it's not all all the time intended. Uh, but just the desire often leads to to new branches of technology. Cell phones is a good example. We have cell phones because of NASA, which you know you could see is good or bad. <laughs> Um, the next one on this list of eight, number five is short experiments. And he talks about those Pixar shorts that they started putting at the end or beginning, the beginning, I guess, in the theaters on all the Pixar movies. And, uh, the one that I remember as a kid, and I think he mentions it is, is, uh, the old guy who plays chess by himself and he's walking back and forth across the table. Um, but you don't know that for a while. It just looks like two guys who are the same because he's like taking his glasses off or whatever. It's just a funny little little video, and Pixar has other ones as well. But they called those short experiments because they were able to try out people who could potentially direct a full-length feature film on one of those things. 
and they could learn different things or experiment with new ideas or new animation techniques in those little experiments. And it's much more cost effective and allows them to learn a lot without putting, you know, millions of dollars at risk by gambling on a new director or new technology, whatever it is. Um, and that kind of goes along with the idea of fail fast where you don't want to never try anything new, but if you can try to do something in an environment where the punishment won't be severe, if you fail, it really allows for experimentation and a lot of things come out of that. Yeah. I wouldn't use the word punishment. I would use consequence. Consequence. You're right. That's a better word. Um, Another thing that they talked about in that section was that short experiments don't always accomplish what you think they might, but they might accomplish something just as good. I think the example they gave was they were trying new directors on these shorts, but they didn't realize that these shorts weren't a great indicator of whether or not they'd be a good director of a full length film. Uh, but something good that happened instead was the animators became a lot better when they worked on short films because they were able to go into be- into greater depth because there were fewer animators. They had to do the whole thing. So they were able to hone their skills animating different things as opposed to animating very, very small segments of, fi- uh, of film. Uh I, I don't know. I thought that was a good lesson. Things don't always have the consequence you think they will, but they might have something just as good or better. Or, you know, maybe it'll be worse. Who knows? Yeah, either way, you're learning, right? Yeah. I think the idea of a short experiment in, in your own personal life is also pretty important. Whether it's like trying out something new trying out a new habit or whatever it is like you don't have to commit for something forever you can try it learn from it and adjust and adapt which is a lot better than waiting until you think you've designed the perfect experiment and then going with that as we've discussed previously in this book i feel like it's a topic we've covered but i feel like we've discussed that in a lot of the books we've read yeah probably (laughs) yeah in the habit book as well yeah Anyway, a good a good little reminder of that concept. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next one, number six, is titled "Learning to See," and um, what did you? Okay, I remember that section now. He talks about how, and this goes along with broadening your your view. But he talks about how they would sign people up for art classes sometimes and not just the animators, even like directors or anybody who worked at Pixar and would help them learn how to draw a chair. It's kind of the example they give or the, the picture in here at least. But And how that would they would just find new skills, right? And learn how to um, 
see more as you learn how to draw. I remember in like fifth grade taking a, not to, I didn't take the class, but this like one of the kids' moms came in and taught us how to like draw. There was a name for it, but like a 3D ball that was sitting on a counter and how you had to like draw the shadow. It was like your visual eye, you see the ball, you don't really think about the shadow, but if you're forced to draw it, you start to notice those things. And that's kind of what this chapter reminded me of. It was just to help you look at things and notice different things. And when you have to take a drawing class, it it kind of forces you to do that. And I think there are other ways in life to force you to, to notice more. But that just allows you to see more and, again, kind of just broadens your view. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting because he talks about the scientific reason why Oftentimes when amateurs draw a person's face, for example, that they'll draw them with huge eyes and massive lips and like a bigger nose. And that's because our brain interprets these parts of the face as more important than the rest. So we get the proportions wrong. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the way of countering this is to think of the, the space you're not trying to draw. Uh, he talks about the chair. Instead of drawing the chair, you draw the space around the chair. And oftentimes that helps with the spacing and the proportions of whatever you're drawing. So the p- whole point of this section, like you said, is to just be able to see things. You're learning to see things differently from a different point of view. And this helps, you know, in a creative way. It, or this helps you manage a creative team better if you can can do that. I also liked how he talked about that everyone was welcome in these classes. It wasn't just drawing classes. The last section that... Well, it's actually... Is it the next section? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Oh, so. there's, an, there's another section that's continuing to learn where they talk about all the other classes that they had at Pixar. Uh, and everyone was welcome, whether you were a producer or manager or, or animator or janitor. And he said there was incredible value by having a, a manager or an executive officer of some sort sitting next to each other. Uh, because they got to share each other's ideas and they got to see the people for who they were and not just for their title uh, or what they did at the company. Yeah, I believe he said that was one of those unintended benefits, right? I think so. Because, yeah, I, I would like that. I like hear about the higher ups in my company. And I've, I've, you know, maybe seen a few of them once. Some I don't have never seen ever. And it would. Yeah, it would be nice to interact with those people and realize that they're just human and and uh, not a really scary guy in a suit somewhere sitting in an office, you know. So yeah, yeah, that was cool that he mentioned that. Um, okay, there are two more. Oh yeah, you mentioned continuing to learn, and the other one is called postmortems, which was essentially a meeting they did after every movie. It took, it sounds like a full day, sometimes more. I don't remember, but 
And they would essentially go over the whole process for the movie and just analyze everything that they did wrong, everything they did right, what they can take away from it. Um, and I think that's a pretty important concept. Just, I think it's really easy and it would be easy. And he even says that it's, it, no one really wanted to do it at that point. Cause they'd finished the movie. They felt like celebrating and then relaxing and then moving on to the next project. But I think it can be really important to, to review what you do, you know, on an individual level in your relationship, your family, I think it's really important to to do that because you can learn a lot. And so the little lessons or little things that you learn aren't lost over time. And also, so those things can be communicated to the rest of the company or the rest of the group. Um, but yeah, I like that. I thought it was a really good idea. Yeah. they He gives a list of five different things that he thinks these postmortems accomplish. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but I will say that the whole postmortem process reminded me of our last book, Atomic Habits, in that you don't grow unless you have some sort of reflection. You're not improving, at least not intentionally, if you don't reflect on what's already happened, what you've already done. Uh that was a big part that really clicked for me when we read that, uh, when we read Atomic Habits. And this is the same, the same thing, just in a creative environment. Just because you're done with the project doesn't mean you're, you're done with the project. Yeah, for sure. And then, like you said, the last section is just continual learning and continuing to learn and I feel like we've already basically covered that but I think it's really important in life to always have that attitude of there's something to learn there's more to learn and you can become better as you learn things um, so yeah <laughs> amen I agree <laughs> always learning Always be learning. You got anything else to cover on that chapter? Um, I just wanted to add, I'd written here that continuing to learn is important because it, it stifles that fear of the unknown, that fear of failure. When you learn, you gain more confidence and that allows you to push forward and accomplish uh, a lot of things that you previously may have thought you weren't able to do. At least I've, I've found that to be the case as I learned something, particularly in a new environment, I, I gained confidence with that thing and mm. it, it gets easier. Yeah. I think I've experienced that with our house. It'll be like, something wrong like one day our dryer broke and i was just like i have no idea like i guess we're gonna buy a new dryer or call, call a repairman and then i just quickly googled it and it was like it's most likely that this one 
Fuse is is broken and you can buy it for four dollars on Amazon. And so I did that and then I had to like take our whole dryer apart, put the fuse in, put it all back together and just hope it worked. And it took me like four hours, but it, it just worked after that. And I was like, oh, that wasn't that hard. I just had to like research it a tiny bit. And but yeah, I think I think it would have been easy for me to just been like, oh, let's just throw some money at a repairman and see if he can fix it for us. But like a little bit of seeing if I could do it myself and learning just made it much less of a problem. And uh, I think that's a good attitude. I'm glad I had that attitude in that moment. And I want to keep that attitude because it was cheaper. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And now I just know a little bit more about dryers, which is cool. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. I know nothing about dryers, so guess who's calling you when mine I mean, breaks? I, I still don't. It's probably not even called a fuse. I probably got that word wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, for all our listeners that are dryer specialists, please uh, email us and let us know if Christian's right. I'm sure I could find it real quick. Uh, well, while you're searching for that, the last chapter in this section is called The Unmade Future. There's the whole idea of this chapter is that we all have mental models that help us get through life and get through our jobs. And specifically in a creative environment, there's mental models that help directors or producers or managers uh, help them cope with the stress of their job. One quote that I really loved from this section is, the best way to predict the future is to create it. <laughs> I mean, simple as that, man. <laughs> I I also wrote down that quote. Well, nice. Typed up that quote. And yeah, I agree. I thought that was a good message. Just a good, optimistic, powerful message of, you know, we have quite a bit of control over the future, which in general, I think is just a good thing to think about um, instead. Because the opposite, I feel like, is just feeling like you're an object that gets acted upon and you don't have control over your life, which to me is pretty pessimistic, pretty negative. I don't see much good in that in that mindset. So, but yeah, coming back to the book and leading creative people. Um, I think leaders of groups have a lot of power over that group as history shows, but um, there are just a lot of, and I guess I look back on leaders that have been in my life who have had a good influence um, and also a few bad ones, a few bosses I didn't care for that much. But there's just a huge difference, right? And if you are a conscientious leader and you, I think, try to care for the people and try to do your best and really put effort into it, I think anyone with, with almost any skill set can, can lead people and can make that environment a good one. And I think leaders have a lot of ability to change the future when it comes to something like that. Yeah. Uh, not only is having the mindset of you don't have any control or any say 
as to what happens, uh, like a bad mindset, not only is it a bad, a bad thing to think, but those that are successful just simply do not have that mindset. They feel like they always have a say. And when you're a manager, if you can bring that across to your employees that they always have a say, you will be far more successful. If you can be decisive and have reasons for why you're going the way you're going and then admit when you were wrong and change course quickly to the course that you now feel is right, they'll respect you for having having the cojones, if you will, to uh, admit that you were wrong. And again, if you can be decisive and yet still let them feel like they have their say, they will see you as a really good manager. Not even let them feel like they have their say, but actually let them have a say. And if there's a reason why you think it's wrong, you bring that to their attention in a way that's respectful and not putting them down, they'll, I don't know, I just feel like the best managers I've had, the best bosses I've had have been able to do that really well and really effectively. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to confidence. Um, Yeah. If you have a boss or or a leader, who's just not confident in all in their decisions and you can tell, which I don't know if I've ever been in that situation where I've been like looking at a leader, like this guy doesn't know anything that he's, yeah. but I can only imagine that that would be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, would that be better or worse than a manager who's like so set in his ways and going the wrong direction, but doing it confidently? I don't know. Those both sound frustrating. Yeah. But obviously the ideal is, as you explained, a manager who's confident but also willing to adapt when new information gets brought to him. But but yeah, I think I think having confidence, showing that confidence is gonna do a lot to get you the respect. And obviously to keep it, you have to be able to adapt. Um, but I think there is a lot there, a lot of importance in just making decisions confidently quickly and going with it. <clears throat> yeah. Of course you might need to, to change, but yeah, I think in the, in this book, Ed writes about this guy named Andrew who he's brings, a, brings up the same concept by saying confidence for confidence's sake is stupid or something like that. If you're confident and have no reason to be confident in your decision, that just shows that you're being stubborn. And if you're not willing to change when you when it's clear that you're doing something wrong or that you're on the wrong course, it's just bad management. So, yeah, but confidence and fallibility when you can master those two uh, concepts, I feel like that would make you a pretty good manager. Yeah, I agree. I think there's just one other topic that I liked from this chapter. 
And I'll just read a little sentence or two here from, from page 237. But he says, some people make the mistake of thinking that they are being mindful because they are focusing diligently on problems. But if they are doing so while subconsciously bound up with their worries and expectations, with no awareness that they can't see clearly, or that others may know more, they aren't open at all. So that kind of relates to the boss who doesn't take any suggestions. Um, But that also made me think about how easy it is to feel like you're being productive or feel like you're being mindful when you're getting things done. But if all you're doing is, is busy work and things that don't have much consequence, you're not really making that much progress. Um, and I think that's a trap I've fallen into a few times. And even, even at work, sometimes I will, well, not so much at work, but I, I mean, previously I I have done this before, but where I feel like I have a good productive day and I'm doing a lot of little things, but I realize I'm putting off the most important thing I have to get done to get all those little things done. And it's, I think it's a form of procrastination, right? Or like, I know there's one big thing I got to do. I don't want to do it. So I do all these other less important things. And, um, I think, and I don't really know if that's what he was getting at, but that's what it reminded me of, of, um, just, I think to be truly mindful, you have your priorities, right. And you know what the most important thing is that you need to get done. And that's your focus. Um, did any of that make sense to you? <clears throat> yes. Yes, it did. I think, yeah, well said, man. I think that the last thing I want to talk about from this chapter is when he writes about the importance of being present in the moment. And he went off to some some camp where he did silent meditation for a week. And he was a beginner it was the first time he'd ever done it and he felt so weird about it that he almost quit, but he stayed and it really taught him to be present in the moment. And it reminded me of the, the book we read that you didn't like. Um, I can't even, what was that called? Untethered soul. Yes. The untethered untethered soul. soul. Something like that. Yeah. Um, just because it had that Eastern theological way of uh, that feeling, I guess, uh, way of explaining things, where when you embrace something um, or when you embrace change, you're present in the moment and you realize that you can't stop change from happening. And the more you try to stop it, the less happy you'll be or or it'll put you in a place you don't want to be that was the last concept from this chapter that i really liked nice (laughs) i agree i guess one yeah one other thing i was thinking about on that the thing about post-mortems is I feel like it's also easy to do that too much, right? To, to linger too much on the past and dissect 
old conversations over and over again. Yeah. Which can be a negative thing, right? If you're if you're dwelling too much on something like that, on someone that upset you yesterday or the guy who tailgated me when I was trying to make it through that light earlier or whatever. That's usually what it is for me is some jerk who drives like a jerk. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, it's just, while it's important to, to analyze the past, it's also not good to live in the past. And, um, yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Well, I don't have anything left. Me neither. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for showing up to yet another episode. Uh, Although Garrett's going to edit this one, so there probably aren't going to be very many people. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, there's this weird trend where every episode I edit is not listened to and every episode Christian does edit is has like a, a bunch of downloads. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but we should probably bring this up on our next episode. Cause then, you know, our next episode is the one that people are actually going to listen to. So maybe you dirt, maybe, bag. maybe those people can, you know, let us know why they're skipping all your episodes. I don't know. That would be great. I really would like to know it's, it drives me crazy. <laughs> it's, it's beyond like it yeah it's like at this point statistically there's something going on you know yeah beyond randomness beyond chance at this point because the last like seven episodes have followed this trend by like over a hundred views different right it's just oh just, yeah like <laughs> i don't i don't understand it so <laughs> Irregardless. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.